mankind has an identity problem, especially in our day. The cardinal sins of our culture are the result of having absolutely no sense of who or what we are as human beings. Martin Lloyd-Jones once captured the schizophrenic, internally inconsistent view of man's identity that still plagues our society. He said, the contemporary conception of man, on the one hand, doesn't make enough of man, and, on the other, makes too much of him. He's right about that. We don't make enough of man because we consider man to be a mere animal, not really distinct from the other creatures of God's creation. Abortion, euthanasia, when a person is deemed to be not useful or too much of an inconvenience, he can be discarded. We don't make enough of man because we don't see him as an image bearer of Almighty God. We don't see the inherent dignity and value that man has, and so we treat him like an animal. And yet, the Scriptures say that man is the pinnacle of God's creation, uniquely created in His image to represent His glory to the world, whose life is valuable because it is the image of the Creator of that life. And so, on the one hand, we don't make enough of man. On the other hand, as Lloyd-Jones said, we make too much of man. We flatter ourselves into suggesting that man is basically good, a morally upright being who just needs to live out his authentic inner self. There are these axiomatic catchphrases, almost catechetical phrases from our culture. You're amazing just the way you are. Only God can judge me, which I've never figured out why is a comforting thought to most people. (laughs) And perhaps most popular at the moment, you find your truth and live your truth, which is to say, fabricate your own version of reality. And insist on it. You can create male and female in your image. You determine when a baby becomes a person, when it has value and dignity and so should be protected from harm. You can define marriage however you see fit. Two men, two women, even three people. These days, you can marry your pets. And what that shows you is that even when man makes too much of himself, he winds up in that not making enough of himself. The embrace of transgenderism leads men and women to treat themselves like Frankenstein-like experiments and often ends in irreversible self-mutilation and sterilization. The embrace of abortion leads to the murder of defenseless human beings. The embrace of homosexuality leads to the denigration and the trivialization of the most solemn of human relationships, that is, marriage. 
But there is this self-contradictory approach to man's identity, isn't there? On the one hand, we don't make enough of man, and on the other hand, we make too much of him. If we're going to have any hope of being salt and light in this culture, in the way that Jesus commands us to be, we need to be equipped to tear down the strongholds of our society's perverseness and to take every thought captive unto Christ, to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and the biblical doctrine of sexuality. And that means it has never been more important for Christians to find our identity in who God says we are. And uh, I said two weeks ago when I was last with you that that identity begins with the fact that we are creatures. This is the very first, most fundamental thing to say about man. In fact, it's the first thing said about man in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man. And so the first thing that we must say about man is that he is made, that he is not God that he is the creature of the one true and living God. And that means that we do not create our own identity. It means that we receive our identity from our Creator. We are not evolved animals, however highly functioning. We are not slaves to our basest passions and impulses. We are not of no more dignity than to be discarded when society determines that we're no longer useful or convenient or wanted. And yet neither are we semi-divine demigods, unaccountable to anyone but ourselves, fabricating our own truth or speaking our own identity into existence. We are, most fundamentally, creatures. And so we are accountable to God, our Creator, subject to the identity He has given us and subject to the law of His mouth as the rule of our lives. And so last time, we defended that fundamental tenet of man's identity, his creatureliness, by vindicating the biblical doctrine of creation. If the culture's goal is ultimately to free man from his accountability to his Creator and the totalizing claims of the Creator's law so he can be left alone to sin in peace, well then, they they start at the very root. They seek to undermine the notion that man is a creature at all and they say that he's the product of evolutionary processes and so on. So, we defended six-day creation saw how that is the truth of our existence, of the creation of our existence, and of the creation of the existence of all things. We turn this evening to discuss what is perhaps the next most fundamental concept concerning man's identity, namely that man is created as the image of God. Because the second thing that shows up in Genesis 1.26 right after the term man is used for the first time in Scripture, is that man is the image of God. Look at it. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then Genesis 1.27, the next verse, God 
created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Instead of that schizophrenic, inconsistent view of man, Scripture identifies man as the image of God. And Joel Beakey makes the comment that man is a fallen masterpiece of God. And I think that really captures it well. Man is a masterpiece. We are a masterpiece because we are made in the image of God. And therefore, we have inherent dignity. Our lives are worthy to be protected because we are the closest reflection of the life and character of our Creator. But man is a fallen masterpiece. We have not remained in that very good state in which God created us. We haven't lost the image of God, but we have marred it. Something has gone terribly wrong with us so that the altogether optimistic views of man and his moral goodness are a wild caricature of reality. Men and women are lost, bound for hell, and totally beholden to the sovereign grace of God for any remedy to our hopeless predicament. And so it is difficult to overestimate the importance of the doctrine of the image of God, that human beings are created in God's image stands as a defining notion for understanding who we are fundamentally, where we've come from, what our purpose is, to whom we are accountable, how we've gone wrong, and how we're to function in our various relationships. And it's at this level of man's fundamental identity where the battle is raging against the truth in our culture, in our society at the present moment. And we need to be equipped to wage the warfare of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Society, the the world that lies in the power of the evil one is seeking to undermine the most basic creational realities. Who are you? The first thing is that you're a creature made in the image of God, male and female. What's under attack? Creation, the identity of man, and our gender. And so if we're to withstand that, in our own minds and thinking, if we're to withstand it so that we are not tossed to and fro, blown around by the the every wind of doctrine in an evil age, and then also if we're to engage the world around us with the truth, we must be equipped in these things. And so we turn to it. We saw already Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. We also see that in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Image and likeness. And then if you turn a few more chapters to Genesis 9 and verse 6, after the flood now, after the certainly after the fall, even after the flood, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And it's not just in these foundational texts of the Old Testament. 
In 1 Corinthians eleven seven, Paul says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. And we have it again in James 3, verse 9, which says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And when you do a detailed word study of the Greek and Hebrew terms for image and likeness, you're left with a couple of conclusions. First, the two terms are virtually interchangeable. It's not as if image speaks of one discrete concept and likeness speaks of another. And second, these terms express the notion of representation and similarity. Representation and similarity. In, an, in the ancient world, a king or a ruler would place an image or an idol of himself in his realm to symbolize his sovereignty over that realm. And when others saw his image, they knew this is who has control here. And in the same way, God's image bearers represent God to the world. It lets the rest of creation know that this one created in the image of God signals that God has rule here. And then likeness is simply a pattern after an original, something like the original, but not identical to it. And so Genesis 5.3 tells us that Seth was made in Adam's likeness, which meant that Seth was like Adam in that he was a human being from his loins, even while he was not Adam himself. He wasn't identical to Adam. And so man is not identical to God, as pantheism teaches Neither is man a part of God, as in panentheism. We do not partake in God's incommunicable attributes. God alone is eternal and infinite, while man is temporal and finite. God alone is self-existent, while man depends on God for life and breath and all things. God alone is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, while man is limited in power and wisdom and is localized in space. Man's creation in the image of God does not mean that we creatures are so much like our Creator as to be gods in any sense. Instead, being created in the image of God means that we are like God in very important ways and that we represent God in the world in a way that is unique among the other creatures. In fact, it's best to say not that man has the image of God somewhere dwelling within him, but that man is the image of God on earth, representing God to the world. So why are we here? What is the purpose of our lives? What am I supposed to do in this world? Has, has anybody that you know asked you that, those kinds of questions anytime recently? They're surely asking them in their own minds, if not directly to you. What's the answer? Men and women are designed by God to make His character visible, living in a way that tells the truth about God to the rest of the creation. That is why we are here. That is who we are. Now, Scripture never explicitly defines in what specific ways and to what exact extent man is like God. It doesn't say, okay, man is the image of God, and that means and so on. There's no explicit 
systematic statement. We might like that, but it's not there. And so it, it falls to us then to survey the, the entirety of what God has revealed to us in his word about these truths and make observations from the relevant texts. And so tonight, we're going to work quickly through nine features of the image of God that'll give us a full-orbed biblical picture of our identity as image bearers. And after we consider those nine features, we'll summarize by considering a few implications. So number one, and I've mentioned this several times already, is representation. Representation. If man's being the image of God means that we represent him in some way, well, the manner in which we represent him must at least include the notion that we share some of his attributes, even if in a finite way. Part of what it means to be God's image is that we show forth his communicable attributes. So if God created in power, and he did, let there be light, and it was so, well, then we expect that those he created in his image would reflect a degree of that power and authority. And man does that in his being tasked with exercising dominion and ruling and subduing the earth. We'll read verse 28 of Genesis 1 in, in just a few moments, but you recognize that. He is to, man is to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on. Because God has created in power as king, and we are set up over the creation as vice-regents to rule in power. Well, if God created in wisdom, if his creation was the result of, of the, the overflow of his wisdom and understanding, we expect that his image-bearers would reflect that in some way. And we see that in man's intellectual capabilities above that of the other creatures. We are rational beings in ways that are not, is not said among, about other creatures. And further still, the events of Genesis 1 are not caused by an impersonal force, but by a personal creator. And so it's right to expect that that creator's image bearers would be persons in a way that could not be predicated of the rest of the inanimate creatures or the animate creatures. Since God created by His Word, we would expect that His image bearers are would resemble his communicative nature, even in a way that surpasses the powers of communication in the rest of the creation. Animals surely do communicate, but man's linguistic powers are unique in his reflection of God as the one in whose image he bears. Man communicates with God. Man communicates about God to one another in ways that far surpass the ways that animals would communicate. And so man represents God in part by reflecting certain of God's communicable attributes to the rest of the world. Number two is reverence. And by reverence, I mean that man's being the image of God reflects the worship of God. Just as I said, sinful men make idols or images of their gods that they might worship a visible expression of those idols so also the true God makes images of Himself to multiply the worship of Himself. When God's image bearers rebel and worship idols, rather than reflecting the God in whose image they were made, they begin to reflect their idols. G.K. Beale has a great study 
It's a book called You Become What You Worship. And he shows how idolaters take on the characteristics of the idols they worship. John Piper talks about how what we behold is what we become. He says, you resemble, or Beale rather says, you resemble what you revere, whether for your ruin or restoration. And in a sense, we can say that we are to revere what we were made to resemble. God's character is reflected in a finite and imperfect way in man, but in such a way that we may see that faint reflection of his character, and without worshiping the pictures, we may worship him for how he's revealed himself in his image bearers. Now, how opposite is that to society's self-perception today? The dignity that we have is reflective of God's glory, God's glory, God's worth. We are to see the glory of God faintly reflected in man and not fall down and worship man or worship ourselves. We are to trace the streams of that glory back up to the fountain from which they flow to God himself. Man is to be a conduit of the worship of God. And yet, what has he done? He has perverted that very relationship to make God a means of exalting man. It's famously been said that God made man in his own image, and then man returned the favor by creating God in his image. Men and women today use the concept of God as a boon of their own self-esteem. I'll use God to make much of me, rather than seeing themselves as an instrument of bringing esteem to God's name. Yes, I am like God in certain important ways, but that is a means of making much of him, not myself. Third is relationship. Relationship. In the text in which God declares that he has made man in his own image, Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28, he reveals, God reveals himself in personal plurality. Let us make man in our image. And I do think that that is a veiled reference to the plurality of persons in the Godhead, what we later learn to be triunity. There is both unity and diversity in the very life of God Himself, one essence subsisting in three co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial persons. And that unity and diversity, that relational interaction is reflected in the nature of man as God's image. In other words, God is eternally relating to Himself in that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves them both. You see this in a number of ways. Immediately after stating that God made man in His own image, He clarifies, male and female, He created them. So you see, gender, and in particular the gender binary, is fundamental to the biblical doctrine of man. What it means to be an image bearer is to be either male or female. And that thought will figure prominently in the messages I have for a couple weeks from now, but I can't resist a comment at present. 
If that's so, if what I've just said is true, then any attempt to change one gender into the other, or certainly to try to find a space in between those two, is a fundamental attack on one's own humanity. It is an attack on oneself, a suicidal attempt at self-exaltation. I am going to define who I am, and in the process, I will undermine my own humanity by making myself neither male nor female as God has created. But right there, we do see unity and diversity in God's image that reflects unity and diversity in God himself. Not that he is multiple gods, as the pagans would propose, but that just as the persons of the Trinity are one, in essence, united, but distinct in their personal properties as Father, Son, and Spirit, so also males and females are united in their humanity, but distinct in their different genders. And the fact that The first male and the first female were soon to be brought together in marriage, who were then immediately tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, means that family is the fundamental institution for human relationships. Family is the fundamental institution for human relationships. And so you see why marriage and family are under attack. They're coming for the foundations Number four, rule, or we might say reign. Immediately following the decree that God would make man in his image, he says, Genesis 1, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so on. And verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. You see, man is God's representative in this particular way. He will image God's authority by reigning over creation as a vice-regent, as if in the place of God himself. Again, man's job is to make the invisible king visible by our rule over creation according to the dictates of the king. And we read of that. We read of the kingdom implications of man's rule as vice-regent in Psalm 8, verses 4 to 8. The psalmist writes, what is man? Oh, we, so we, we, we want to find out who we are? What's our identity? We get a question. What is man? He says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. See, we are not on a level with the rest of the creation. We are not uh, evolved animals. We are the rulers of those animals. And so a key part of the image is this ruling and reigning over creation as God's vice regent, as representative of the king, who is seemingly absent, at least visibly. We are to be the royal image of that king. Number five is what I'm calling rectitude, which is a word that begins with R that means there is a moral aspect to the image of God. 
Scripture says that God made man very good, Genesis 1.31. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man upright. This means that Adam and Eve were not morally neutral creatures. They were created in what the Reformed tradition has called original righteousness. But of course, we didn't stay that way, did we? Man fell into sin by rebelling against God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he acted thereby inconsistently with his identity as image bearer of holy God. And what was true of Adam is true for those who were in Adam. And that's all of you and me, represented by our legal head. And so the New Testament teaches that we have inherited his guilt and that we have been transmitted his corruption, and yet that the believer in Christ is being progressively renewed into the image of God. Colossians 3.10 says the believer has put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Being renewed according to the image of our creator. In progressive sanctification, we are returning to a condition in which, or which we were no longer in. Similarly, Ephesians 4, 23 and 24 says, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind and we are to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, literally according to God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So here again, we're being renewed into the likeness of God. And whereas Colossians 3.10 speaks of a true knowledge, Ephesians 4 speaks of righteousness and holiness. And so we can put them together. This moral aspect of the image of God consists in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Charles Hodge says that image did not consist merely in man's rational nature, nor in his immortality, nor in his dominion, but specially in that righteousness and holiness, that rectitude in all his principles, which are inseparable from the possession of the truth or true knowledge of God. But, of course, we know that that rectitude is not all there is to being the image of God because that moral aspect was lost in the fall, and it is regained in Christ. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness does not describe man in his fallen state. Far from true knowledge, Scripture speaks of man as one who walks in the futility of their mind, Ephesians 4.17, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And rather than righteousness, Romans 3 testifies that there is none righteous, not even one. And rather than holiness, Isaiah 64.6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And so this moral aspect of the image was lost at the fall. But Scripture is very clear that the image of God in man is not entirely vanquished by the fall. And that means there is more to the image than the moral aspect. That leads us to number six. The image is remaining. It is remaining. The image of God in fallen man is marred, but it is not lost. It's distorted, but it's not entirely destroyed. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 9-6, 
As I said before, after the fall and after the flood, God institutes the law of capital punishment. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for because in the image of God he made man. Man's being created in the image of God is the ground upon which his life has dignity and worth, and thus is to be protected by the threat of death for taking that life. See, you can kill the animals for clothes. You can harvest those animals for resources. You can domesticate them to serve God's interest and to benefit mankind. But if you kill a man, you've got to die because you've attacked the very image of God. So, though sin has distorted the image of God such that the Christian life is spoken of as the progressive restoration of that image, Romans 8, 29 and 30, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Colossians 3, 10, Nevertheless, it has not been totally obliterated or destroyed. We are not what we ought to be, but we do remain human. We aren't brute beasts. Praise God, we are not as wicked as we could be. Some dignity remains in all human beings so that Jesus could even say, You, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Though you are evil, though you are fallen, there is still something of the image of God that remains. You're not commended to God by giving good gifts to your children. You are not earning your way to heaven. God does not excuse your sin or your evilness because you can give good gifts to your children, but you're not all maniacal serial killers who would, you know, rid the world of everybody else but you and the people you like. There is some reality that though we are totally depraved, though corruption is pervasive throughout all the faculties of our soul, we are not utterly depraved so that we are as bad as we could possibly be. There is some vestigial reflection of God in the man who was patterned after God in his creation. And so all people even in their fallen state, are to be treated with dignity and kindness. They have inherent value as the image of God. Number seven, there is the realized image, which is to say the perfected image, who is Christ. Scripture identifies the God-man, Jesus Christ, as the perfect image of God. Because of our sin, humanity has marred the image of God in us. In order to restore us to a relationship with Him, the Father has sent His own Son to be a perfect representative both of God Himself and of humanity. And so 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, He's called. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Christ makes the invisible God, visible. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And and he's done this in precisely the way that Adam has failed to do. Adam was to make the invisible God visible. He's failed to do that. Christ, the second Adam, comes and succeeds where Adam fails. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Again, John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Where we as men and women fail to function as the image of God, as we fall short 
in those three primary relationships, relationship with God, with other people, and relationship with the creation itself, in all those ways, Jesus succeeds. He overcomes. He fulfills. Jesus perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, and he demonstrated his righteousness, his righteous dominion over creation by quieting the storm, by walking on water, by healing disease. And so he, re- he related to creation rightly, even as its Lord. And so he is the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, who succeeds where Adam fails and imputes to this new race under his headship the righteousness that God requires. Eighth, then, there is the renewed image. The renewed image, and that speaks about those of us who have been saved and who are in the process of being progressively conformed to the image of that Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that believers behold the glory of Jesus and are thereby being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. In Colossians 3.10, again, we've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. In whatever ways that we make progress in practical holiness, we are conformed to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And so that moral aspect that was lost is progressively renewed. All the way until, number nine, that image is restored. The restored image comes to fruition ultimately in our complete conformity to Christ-likeness in glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 speaks of our resurrection and says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy man, Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. And 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him in his likeness because we will see him just as he is. And I love the comment that Beaky and Smalley make in their systematic theology about this. They say, just as Christ is greater than Adam, so our image-bearing in Christ will be more glorious than Adam's. This life, not only this glorified, restored life, will not only lift Christians above their present condition in this fallen world, but will exalt them higher than Adam ever stood in paradise. For the first man was earthly, but the second man is heavenly. That is wonderful. And again, I'm struck with that contrast, with the way that the people of our society destroy themselves in seeking to exalt himself above being the image of God, to exercise the prerogatives of God himself by creating male and female in our image, right? Man ruins himself. He renders himself beneath what Adam was in paradise. But in Christ, walking in faith after the perfect image of God, man is restored to a position above what he had in Adam. Man's devices ruin him so that he's beneath Adam. Christ comes and restores humanity above what they had in Adam. See, this is true and abundant life. Life is not found in the self-actualization of all of our base and fleshly desires. 
Life is found in humble submission to the Lord of glory, walking in the way of His commandments and trusting Him to show us what it means to be truly human in this life. And if man, if man would avoid ruining himself, he needs only to turn his eyes away from himself and fix them upon Christ and follow after Him in humble faith. And we've mentioned some along the way, but I do want to take just these last few minutes to summarize a handful of implications of the doctrine of the image of God. First, that man is created in the image of God is the basis for his uniqueness and dignity. I want to underscore this. No other creature is said to be created in the image and likeness of God. That gives to humans a special place of dignity and responsibility that is not shared by other created beings. Animals are valuable to God, but people are more valuable to God. And and some of you are tempted to be offended by that statement. Jesus tells his hearers in Matthew 6.26 that they are worth much more than the birds of the air. He says in Matthew 10.29-31 that the disciples are more valuable than many sparrows. And in Matthew 12, 12, speaking of healing a man on the Sabbath and how even the Pharisees would rescue a sheep who had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, Jesus says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? And so there is a dignity that is afforded to man precisely because he's an image bearer. 1 Peter 2, 17 says, honor all people. Honor all people. Each human being is owed an appropriate honor for no other reason than than that he is the image of God. This has implications for the way that we treat the poor, for example. Proverbs 13, 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. So if you oppress the poor, you taunt the God who made the poor. If you're gracious to him, you honor the God who made him. Surely that has implications for the poorest of the poor, the precious little babies inside the wombs of their mothers who have no voice of their own to raise in their defense, no capability to protest that they are not merely clumps of cells, but are living human beings who bear the image of their maker. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the, the, defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And again, there are no more unfortunate, afflicted, or needy persons on the planet than those tiny image bearers whom it's legal to rip apart limb from limb. The Bible calls the babies in the womb children. It uses the same terminology of babies in the womb as it does for babies outside of the womb. The law of God in Exodus 22 requires that somebody be put to death for killing an unborn child, which means that the law of God recognizes that the unborn baby is an image bearer of God right alongside its mother, and so Genesis 9-6 applies to it, him or her as well. Which means, friends, 
that abortion, quote-unquote abortion, the euphemized term that that's come to to represent the, the murder of children, has nothing to do with women's rights. It has nothing to do with choice. It has nothing to do with men trying to control women's bodies. It has everything to do with the image of God. Christians are against the murder of defenseless children. Let's just lay that on the table. Christians are against abortion. If you are not against that, you violate a fundamental principle of the Christian worldview, and so you show yourself at best confused and at worst still in bondage to your sins and to your corrupt reasoning. But Christians are against the murder of defenseless children because they are image bearers. Because God's image is to be honored among men and women. Who do you love most? You love God most, who is most worthy of love. Well, then who do you love second most? The image of God, precisely because he is the image of God. Sounds a lot like a first and second great commandment, doesn't it? That is what abortion is about. And so anyone who sheds the blood of those tiny image bearers, including their mothers, deserves to have his or her blood shed as a result, Genesis 9, 6. And of course, we could say all the same things about euthanasia. Just because a human being is so old or infirm that he is no longer considered useful to society or because it might seem more merciful to relieve his suffering by putting him out of his misery, so to speak, the doctrine of the image of God simply does not allow us to put him to death. Christians oppose euthanasia because these dear people are image bearers of the Almighty God. And so their lives have inherent worth and value. You discover the goldfish belly up in the fish tank, no problem with flushing him. You you see the the dog has an issue, you can put him down if he's not going to recover from it and he's suffering. But to shed innocent blood of mankind is one of the six things the Lord says he hates in Proverbs 6. And so it is worthy as murder of the very capital punishment that God prescribes in Genesis 9-6. Then, aside from uniqueness and dignity, a second implication is that all human beings are image bearers, all of them. And therefore, that means that all human beings are created equal before God. God created man in his image, and the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Men and women are equal image bearers of God, and therefore they have equal inherent work, worth, and dignity. And we understand from Scripture that men and women are given different roles to fulfill, both in the home and in the church, but that does not mean that there is any essential superiority or inferiority between them, which means that any sort of sexism, whether chauvinism or feminism, is an attack on the image of God. Any notion of the domination or abuse or subjugation of women by men or men by women is a failure to live consistently with and therefore a violation of this doctrine of Scripture. And so also Acts 17, 26 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live 
on all the face of the earth, which means every ethnicity equally bears God's image. Any sort of ethnic prejudice or racial partiality is an attack upon the image of God. And that's how James reasons in chapter 3 and verse 9 of his letter. We can't praise God with our tongue and then with that same tongue curse people made in the image of God. You see how James reasons? The image of God creates ethical, eth- ethical obligations for how we treat one another. And so any ethnic partiality is strictly forbidden by Scripture. I said this two weeks ago when I spoke about the historical Adam. I said, we all have the same daddy. And we do. Our unity as image bearers of God overcomes any enmity that has been created by focusing too exclusively on our diversity. See, our culture has made diversity a noble end in itself. It's not. The glory of diversity is when the differences inherent to diverse peoples are overcome by an overriding, more glorious unity. And so you are to view yourself and others not first as black or white or Asian or Hispanic, not first as European or Latino or African. You are to view yourself and others first as human as an image-bearer of the one true and living God. And then third, there is both the rule and the stewardship of creation. The rule and the stewardship of creation. Beaky and Smalley write, the right to engage in agriculture and industry arises directly from the dominion of God's image-bearers over the world. When human beings breed animals, care for them in controlled environments, put them to work in service to humanity, and kill them to harvest their bodies for food, medicine, and other products, they are not transgressing against the oneness of all life. They are exercising God-given authority over God's earth. See, we are to rule the earth. And so we are, neither, we are to idolize neither the creation nor the creatures of the creation. We do not treat animals like people. I know that you love your pets, but your dogs and your cats are not your children. They're not your fur babies, I'm sorry. They are wonderful and precious companions. Don't hear me say otherwise. But don't dishonor the image of God by blurring the distinction between humans and animals. Love your pets. Just don't put them in the place of human beings in your family. Or if you don't have blood family, don't put them in the place of the human beings of the family of God, who are your brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and sons. We don't idolize the creatures of the creation. And we don't idolize the creation itself. This planet has been given to us by God, His image bearers, with the intent that we use it. God never intended this present creation in its present order to be eternal. And so we ought not to be overly concerned with trying to save the planet or take care of Mother Earth, the latter of which is an entirely pagan notion. There is no such thing as Mother Earth. I like what one man said referencing Isaiah 66, 1, your Mother Earth is my father's footstool. (laughs) And yet, at the same time, We don't abuse the creation. We don't treat it disdainfully or wastefully. We are not reckless or exploitative. We're stewards of it. 
And so as stewards, we must be found faithful and sensible rather than faithless and careless. And then finally, we must reiterate that the image is the basis for accountability to God. The basis for accountability to God. One theologian put it this way, to be created in God's image is to belong to God, to be responsible to obey his law and to devote ourselves to him in love, faith, and service. The point is, the God in whose image you are made will be the God you one day stand before to give an account for your life. Not just Christians, because not just Christians are created in his image. All people. And that means you are not free to order your life however you see fit. You are not free to forge your own identity. You are what God says you are. And you must conduct yourself in the way that God says you must. You may not rebel against the created order of God by identifying as a different gender when God has made you male or female in his image. You see, God has designed to receive glory from your life as his creature as the male or female that he created you to be. So you, as a woman, cannot glorify God in a way that a man is designed to to glorify God. And you, as a man, cannot glorify God in the way that God designed a woman to glorify him. God means to get particular praise from your life, given your manhood or womanhood. Similarly, you may not rebel against the created order of God by pursuing romantic and sexual relationships with members of the same sex. He created men and women to complement one another, to image forth the unity and diversity of the Godhead. Just as there is unity of essence and diversity of person in the Trinity, so also there is to be a unity of humanity and a diversity of gender in the marriage relationship. Homosexual marriage distorts the picture of God that mankind is designed to be. It places unity in unity where there is to be unity and diversity. It lies about the nature of God whose image we are. So you see, you're bearing the image of another whose image is on this coin, Jesus says, when they say, well, Caesar's. Okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But whose image is upon this man? Whose image is upon this woman? God's. Well, then render to God the things that are God's. Your bearing the image of another speaks to your accountability to that other. And if you appear before God in whose image you're made in the nakedness of your own righteousness, apart from being restored to the image of God by being conformed to the image of Christ by faith, you will suffer his eternal judgment. Being created in the image of God but having fallen And marred the image of God is reason to seek restoration to the image of God through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then to walk in conformity to Christ's likeness. But Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, the perfect image of God, the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, he has come and he has lived the life that all image bearers were commanded to live but failed to live. And he died on the cross, the death that each one of us deserved to die because of our sins. Then he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that we might 
put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. And so it falls to us to repent of our sins, to repent of the ways that we have marred the image of God in us and, to li- and have lived inconsistently with our identity as image bearers. And it falls to us to trust in Christ, the perfect image of God, to restore us to him. And it falls to us not only to believe that gospel, and so unbeliever, if you're here and you are not in Christ, it falls to you to believe that gospel tonight and begin to be recreated by a, life li- a lifetime of conformity to Christ-likeness. But Christian, those who have been restored to the image of God and are being renewed to the image of God, it falls to us then to preach that very gospel to all the image bearers we come into contact with who stand yet in rebellion to him. May we be found faithful witnesses to the truth of God in this crooked and perverse generation, confronting the lies of militant secularism with the truth of the Scripture, destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the richness of your word, which teaches us all things and gives us a wisdom that we could only fall before and bow before in humble worship. How the foundations are being assaulted before our very eyes. May you protect your people, guard their minds from fine-sounding arguments and manipulative emotionalism. Let it be that we are rooted in the truth of the Scriptures, even and especially on these most fundamental matters, where from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we're told who we are, and what our purpose is, to whom we're accountable, how we're to function, how we're to live our lives in the various relationships that you have given us. And I pray that you would give grace to those outside of Christ, that you would quicken divine life in the dead soul, that you would say, as you did in creation, let there be light in the dead heart and give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God who is shining in the face of Christ, Christ who is the image of the invisible God. And I pray that you would show us Christ to the eyes of our heart, that by faith we might look upon him and see him in all of his beauty, in the perfection of his humanity as the perfect image of God, as the one who perfectly reflects the creator in our own nature, and not only by his example, but by that glorious sight beheld by faith that you would transform your people into that very image from glory to glory. Make us holy, sanctify us, help us to walk more consistently with the truths of your word. Convince your people of how glorious it is to walk in faithfulness after Christ despite all of the crookedness and perverseness of this generation. And may it be that you equip us to be salt and light so that we would have that preserving um, impact on a decaying culture and that we would be a light to those who walk in darkness, calling them to rescue and deliverance and salvation through Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.